This episode is brought to you by mParticle, the growth API. mParticle is the best way to connect your customer data to all the leading marketing and measurement partners. And you need those partners to run and grow your business in a multi-screen world. It's a data platform that's trusted by both marketers and engineers alike at forward-thinking brands like Airbnb, Spotify, Hulu, Postmates, Venmo, and many others. Visit mparticle.com slash decode to learn about how mparticle can help modernize your data infrastructure and accelerate growth. This podcast is also sponsored by GoCD, an on-premise, open-source, continuous delivery server by ThoughtWorks. GoCD gives you complete control of and visibility into your deployments across multiple teams. To learn more about GoCD, visit gocd.io slash recode for a free download. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the person who makes $500 a night by airbnb a cardboard box in San Francisco, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode, and while you're there, leave us a review. Today in the red chair is Brad Stone, an old friend of mine and a fantastic journalist who now writes for Bloomberg Tech. He's the author of several books, including The Everything Store, Jeff Bezos, and The Age of Amazon. And he has a new book out called The Upstarts, How Uber, Airbnb, and the Killer Companies of the New Silicon Valley are Changing the World. Apparently, they're changing the world again. I'm so sick of this changing world. Brad, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you, Kara. Are you required to say changing the world on book titles? It now? is a I contractual obligation. Yeah, yeah, I did. I think I had a changing the world. I think I did on my AOL book. Oh, God, it's horrible. I'm not going to have it on my next one. It's going to be like Fox. Oh, what, is, what is the next one? It's called Fox Silicon Valley, really. Awesome. <laughs> it's not, no, it's, I've got a good one. You're going to be surprised. It's not what you expect. They wanted me to write a fictional novel of Silicon Valley and throw everybody under the bus. but Can't wait. You know what? I don't want to do like that. That sounds like fun. Yeah, I'm not doing that. I don't have the time to do that. And I don't want to, I just don't, it's not worth it. I'd rather throw a lot of other people under the bus. So let's talk about you and your book. So give your background a little bit. So people who don't know Brad Stone, everybody in Silicon Valley does. You're a great tech reporter. You, you worked at the New York Times, a whole bunch of places. Talk just very briefly about your background. Yeah, thanks, Kara. I think we probably first met when I came out here for Newsweek in the in Newsweek. the late nineties. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was here. Yeah. I so just I got saw the, the 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 up and then the down mm-hmm. and then the remarkable rebound. Mm-hmm. Uh, went to the New York Times. When did you get here? Ninety uh, eight. Oh, so the yeah. late. Yeah. yeah. Well, so what, right little, before the fall, right? A little taste, right? Right. Uh, for the first boom, mm-hmm. um, and then I was at the New York Times, and uh, yeah, and covering a couple of companies, including Amazon, and mm-hmm. for a long time, it just struck me, you know, that no one had written. In the great Amazon book. Sure. And so, you know, that was now 2013, so a couple of years ago. And after that one, I just thought, you know, it being a sort of punishing and, you know, at times thoroughly demoralizing effort to to publish and promote a book, I thought, mm-hmm. well, naturally, I just have to do this again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I haven't gotten up to it since yeah, the 90s. Yeah. I and did so too, and I couldn't go Being a further. masochist, I, I went right back in. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at, at the first thought was to kind of do something like Leibovich had done for DC, right? Right. right. Which is incredibly hard because he's a remarkable You're writer. Also not mean enough, Brad. <laughs> that there's that possibility that I'm Leibovich too nice. Leibovich is mean, which is why I like Leibovich. But he does it with with style. Yes, right? he does. Um, and uh, but. Uber and Airbnb were always going to be kind of – I had this idea of having three or four plot lines, and mm-hmm. those were going to be two. Intertwined. And a couple of things happened. Actually, the, in the original conception, I wanted to make Andreessen Horowitz one of the one oh, of the focuses, okay. too. And then, of course, Tad Friend did that remarkable story in the, mm-hmm. in the New Yorker. But really what happened was Airbnb and Uber – 
you know, when I started this in early 2014, they just took off. Mm -hmm. I mean, like almost nothing, mm -hmm. you know, we've ever seen. And we've seen a lot of companies take sure, off. And, and not only, you know, revenue and employees and venture capital, which was right. itself remarkable, but in the amount of conflict and controversy that they and, left and in their fame, wake. really. They're the two companies, if you had to pick two, who've really gotten sort of done rather well. Like in terms of there's been so many, but these are the two that have gotten gone across the country, not just here in Silicon Valley. Yeah. And we can talk about well, Snapchat would be yeah, the third. And, right, perhaps. And, and of course, changing the world is a cliche, but they have changed cities, the mm -hmm. way that we get around, the way we, where we travel between cities, the options that we have. And so it kind of happened organically that mm -hmm. I just began to, to focus to on focus this. focus on them. Yeah. At the same time as I started, you know, I, I work at Bloomberg. Yeah, I you have a day job. Week. I run the tech coverage at Bloomberg. And uh, but this has been my kind of passion project. Right. So talk a little bit about you. You talk about the conception of it. It's the upstarts. They're they're not upstarts anymore, but they they started as that. They're sort of scary power players at this point, from what I can tell, from the way they behave, and and they're very different. But let's first talk about this killer companies. It's kind of that's an interesting way to put it. They're the new Silicon Valley. Everyone's always talking about the new Silicon Valley, but it's pretty much the old Silicon Valley with new companies. A lot of the same players and stuff like that. So talk about what you're talking about in killer companies. What is what is that conception? Or maybe well, it's just a marketing thing for your book, but perhaps a little bit of both. <laughs> um, the, these are particularly Uber, and you know, in the book is it's not just about the two of them, but mm -hmm. really the industries, home sharing and and, and ride sharing, mm -hmm. and and similar companies in each, and some of the winners, but also many of the losers. And I, mm -hmm. I spend a, a little bit of time exploring, you know, why the companies that were doing smartphone ride hailing before Uber, why they failed. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, fundamentally, these, you know, they have been externally disruptive. And, uh, you know, to a to a taxi fleet owner in New York City or a medallion owner, mm -hmm. these are killer companies. They have, you know, in, in some ways really undermined their living. Right. And so they're disruptive. I mean, it was maybe a little bit harder with a Google you know, or a Facebook to identify no, exactly killers. who is. No, they killed. They killed. They've 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 left some remarkable carnage. But the like, Amazon who is killed. being? There's they've no, all killed. Yeah, but these guys, there's really, you know, there's been no illusion. They have mm -hmm. come after rather large industries, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and yeah. and also, you know, we you know we talk about. You know, moving the realm of digital into into the into the physical world. In the world. analog world, yeah. Yeah, and that's what these companies have done, and 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 they've had to deal with all sorts of regulatory obstacles that, you know, the past generation of entrepreneurs no. and founders haven't. No, they just killed them from a digital point of yeah, view and by replacing and, and they've done demolishing about, and then yeah. replacing. And they they I think they've had to be different. Mm -hmm. Like you know, we we've both interviewed the likes early on of Mark Zuckerberg and Larry Page and Bill Gates. And these are not charismatic communicators, yeah. right? They're, they're a little Asperger-y. And, mm -hmm. and, um, but I would say Travis and Brian are cut from a different mold. They're storytellers. Right. They're charismatic. They've had to be politicians mm -hmm. uh, when called upon. And they've woven together political coalitions and activated their customer base. And so sure. I think there is something different about these guys. Well, let's talk about each of them. As you know, I wrote a big profile of Travis and had spent a lot of time with him and know and interviewed him several times on stage. Talk about Uber first, because you know Travis is sort of the exemplification of Uber, but it started in a very different way, much as many companies did. He did he wasn't the original CEO or really the creator of the idea. Um, he was around and important to it, but it was really Garrett Camp and and who had created StumbleUpon. Talk a little bit about the beginnings of Uber for people who don't know. Yeah, to me, reporting that. 
it was all new, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they like so many companies, they've sort of obfuscated the beginnings mm -hmm. because, I mean, Uber is Travis's company, mm -hmm. right? The the it emergence, is now, yeah, yeah, and the emergence of Uber X, really the most important pivot in the in the maybe in the history of Silicon Valley. It's it's a vast majority of Uber's revenues, and so that flexibility and the rapid growth and the fighting the battles, it's all Travis. So the you really can't, yeah, you can't take any credit away from him. No, it's like Steve Case in AOL. It was someone else you've never heard of, exactly. Named Bill and, was, Meister, yeah. and it is funny how history does repeat itself. Every mm -hmm. every company has the silent mm -hmm. founder. So I, you know, I spent a lot of time. With Garrett. And the remarkable thing is, Uber was inspired by a scene in Casino Royale, the mm -hmm. James Bond movie. Mm -hmm. So there's actually a Sony product placement mm -hmm. of James Bond following his his car around. Right. Uh, and and Garrett saw that. He had he had recently sold Stumble Upon. He had Rich a, and Board. Yeah, Rich and Board, and also dating. Mm -hmm. And and trying to get places in San Francisco. And he wasn't an enthusiastic driver. He, he had a lot of anxiety around parking and driving. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, as you remember, taxi service in San Francisco was horrible. Mm -hmm. And uh, and and pretty soon he started to call black car drivers and then thought of that scene in, in Casino Royale. And that was the inspiration. But that was early and it took a couple of years. And he actually subcontracted the, the work developing it to a friend, a University of Calgary classmate uh, who was Mexican, who then subcontracted yes, out to some, some Mexican engineers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and Travis was a buddy and was an advisor. So it was Tim Ferriss, who you just had on the show, and uh, Steve Jang. And, um, you know, pretty soon, it, it almost took a year of, of development to just get something that worked. And right. partly, you know, the, the iPhone was on AT&T. It didn't work well. GPS right. wasn't ready. They tried it in New York City. It didn't work. And, you know, it wasn't until I think maybe, you know, maybe two two years after Garrett had had the original idea that they turned it into a business. Right. They, they got, like to tell their Paris story, which is their little uh, Pez thing of eBay, right. the same kind of. I think that was important because Garrett had had the idea of buying some cars mm -hmm. and basically using right, the Uber app. And, and Travis, that is when Travis started to work on him as an advisor that why buy these physical assets? Why don't we just enlist drivers and give, give, give the app to them? Right. And yeah, and that was that was hugely important. Right. They like their snowy Paris thing. They couldn't. Yeah. What I loved was though at the time, you know, Travis was taking some time off, and but he had an idea for an Airbnb-like company called PadPass, mm -hmm. which is going to be That's a sort right, of a network of high-end furnished apartments. And so, and he didn't think the Uber idea was all that big. Right, which is interesting. I mean, we, we, he did get excited about it later, but again, he wasn't the CEO for a long, long time. What's interesting about it, though, is is what motivates someone like him. And you're going to read a little bit from a section about him. But one of the things that I, I went and visited his parents and his home and his room, and it was interesting to see. Um, but one of the things that I found him different from others was that there usually there's these young sort of um, earnest founders, uh, semi-inarticulate and they're very much the same. And this was someone who had tried and failed several companies. I think the failure of his previous companies, one was a Napster-like company before Napster. The second one was just an eh. You know, but he worked years eh, on it, and eh, then he eh. finally did sell it. But it was right. it was a it was an enterprise great, company. But all his friends were getting rich, and he was sort of older. And he did he did okay in the end, but he paid for it. That's right? what I mean. Was, he yeah. he was frustrated and angry. I think more than, and I think he saw all his friends sort of getting hundred million, seventy. But you know, he sort of felt like a loser in a lot of ways. And I feel like rage really did motivate him in a lot of ways. Well, 
to me, the, the the turning point for Travis and Uber was the cease and desist that right. Uber got from San Francisco in the fall of 2010, mm-hmm. and suddenly it's a fight. Right, and he he, lo- he loves a fight, right. and you know, and Uber it was called Uber Cab at the time, and mm-hmm. you know there was some ambiguity in the taxi and limo regulations in the sure. state of California. There was a uh, the head of the MTA, Christiane Hayashi, mm-hmm. and I talk about her a little bit in the book and what her motivations are at the time, and she's like the archetypal taxi commissioner Mm -hmm. and there's one of her in every city and every country around the world and um you know and she was blazing mad because the taxi drivers were blazing mad and there was an injustice at the same time you know she was protecting an industry not the consumer it wasn't doing the best for it was doing a horrible job right and you know she had a meeting with ryan graves and and travis at the time an advisor and they found her to be antagonistic and she found them to be incredibly unpleasant Mm -hmm. and suddenly it's a fight, and right. he just loves he it. He does that. It's so funny because his parents are lovely, and you. So, when I met his parents, I'm like, "Where's the asshole parents?" Because, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like, but you know, in, you can't grow one like that without. In but. looking at the other companies that tried this and failed, like the Cabulous and the Taxi Magic, like they didn't have a Travis, mm-hmm. and they tried to work from the inside, right? And they exactly. weren't too nice. Yeah, and, that was a and, key part of their success was his pugnaciousness. So read the section you want to be read about, about uh, Travis. This is about him. Oh right, okay. This is him when really, he decides to become CEO. Because yeah. again, he was an advisor. for a long time and and had hired different people and they were running it, but it wasn't him. Okay, so the fight with Christian Hayashi and the city of San Francisco had started. They had gotten the cease and desist, which had Ryan Graves' picture on it. Right, they were going to arrest him or something. Yeah, Yeah. the the fines are are going up. Uh, And I'll start reading and you just tell me uh, when I've gone on for too long. Kalanick was now prepared to devote himself fully to another entrepreneurial adventure. He stopped angel investing, curtailed his advising of other companies, and even broke up with a longtime girlfriend. He also showed early flashes of belligerence toward competitors, an augur of the conflicts to come. Quote, they will be getting into one of the most complex businesses I've ever seen for all the wrong reasons, and they will sorely underestimate the pummeling they will go through at the expense of my bare knuckles. He emailed a friend who was pointing at a tweet critical of Uber by a potential rival. Kalanick signed off with bleeding Uber blood. Oh, dear. (laughs) Wow, that sounds like him. And that's an internal email, and I've got a bunch of them in the book. And they're, you know, they're just, you know, they're revealing of a guy who, you know, who believed in the mission, Mm -hmm. you know, and fought and fought for it. And and ultimately, like Uber would not have been successful. Was there a negative to this personality trait, do you think? Because it really did carry them there compared to others. Yeah, I think there are a couple of negatives. One, in places around the world where perhaps, you know, the taxi interests were a little stronger, places like Europe, uh, it backfired. You know, they they had executives get arrested. They had, you know, ride-sharing services shut down. They spun their – they came in guns blazing, Mm -hmm. and it was counterproductive. But then, you know, the other thing is that they were foot on the accelerator for so long, and they should have done better at at getting in front of the obvious – Drawbacks. No, no. I mean, like background checks Mm -hmm. and safety issues. You you have a business that's dependent on drivers, on non-professional drivers looking at phones in their cars. No, and and, you know, people have gotten hurt. And I think Uber early on probably, and they would probably admit, could have done a better job on things like background checks and safety checks and technology to that. Uh, you know, ensures safe driving. Well, this was the, one of the big issues was this heedless rush into growth that right. didn't think of the consumers, didn't well, think of the and, possibilities and, of dangers to consumers. And was fueled by Travis's competitiveness because mm-hmm. he's, you know, they ride sharing was started by Lyft and, and Sidecar. Right. And Travis thought it was illegal. And I talk about that in the book. Uh, and really, they lobbied for the, the, uh, 
PUC in, in California to shut Lyft and Sidecar down. Mm-hmm. And it was only months later when that never happened that, that Uber must started. That be a good business. Yeah, yeah, that Uber started it. And, uh, you know, and it was his ferociousness and really un- unwillingness to see the ride-hailing category that Uber had pioneered yielded to anyone mm-hmm. else that, you know, they flung themselves into this rapid growth. And literally, there were casualties, and then it ended up in some, in some parts of the world being being counterproductive. They came in too too hot. They did definitely, and and some of the criticism seemed to get to them a little too much. Their famous Emil meltdown at that with the BuzzFeed reporter. Have they recovered from that? Have they learned from that? To explain it, they essentially threatened Sarah Lacey, right. another journalist, and she had been writing some very critical story and needed stories on um, dangers to women and why would these privileged white men understand why women might worry about things like this. And not just that, but that there were, there were serious dangers. And this was a misogynistic company. I think that's really the essence. And they weren't thinking about the safety and people should be clear about that. And, and so Emil seemed to, as usual, walk right into it and threaten her and to, to Ben uh, Smith from BuzzFeed. Have they moved beyond that? Have they learned something from that? Because it really, that to me was the Nadir of well, I, I think I call that chapter, and I recount the whole thing. Mm-hmm. It's it's like it's yeah, Uber's rough ride. It's mm-hmm. 2014, and it wasn't just that. It was uh, it was it was the tracking of your reporter, yes. right? Right. Uh, yes, Johanna Bullion. Johanna, mm-hmm. she was right. working at BuzzFeed at the time, right? With the Godview uh, tool, which um, many companies had done. I remember Facebook had that controversy, right? In the beginning. And and you know, it's just a complete absence of privacy protection inside a fast moving company. Mm-hmm. And there were other mistakes, um, right? The the tweeting of some sexist images by yep. an Uber team in France. Right. I mean, to- the company has matured. Remarkably, and you know, and yeah, we could kind of let them off the hook by saying, "Oh, they were young and moving quickly," and but you know, they had raised a lot of venture capital, and you know, they're in a business that you know requires a good. It's a public service, moving mm-hmm. people around, and so they they should have been more mature, and they should have spoken mm-hmm. with more maturity. And I think the fact that they were a kind of shoot from the cuff company back then was a complete manifestation of Travis's personality. Right, right. He's just a fighter. I do think in this case it, we shouldn't quite let them off. No, I don't think so. The yeah. issue is it's not like there's you get the wrong search and they make some dumb thing. Right. You're not hurt no, by people. People, can be people are dying. And a I, lot of these companies, you know, you think of Theranos, you think yeah. of a lot of them. And and we'll make the connection to Airbnb, but you know. There have been people who have died in Airbnbs, and I don't let them off the hook mm-hmm. in the book. I think you know one of the things that Travis has always said to his uh, CTO Tuan is, "Anything you can predict, I expect you to handle." Mm-hmm. And a lot of the drawbacks, a lot of the difficulties that Uber has had, have been completely predictable, mm-hmm. and they they handled them poorly. So right. you know, by their own standards, they made a lot of mistakes, and I think that they would admit that. All right, we're going to talk about Airbnb in the next section, but what? Talk about the money that they raised. It's enormous. What is it right now? Extraordinary. It's over ten billion trillion dollars. <laughs> It's over ten billion dollars. I we, I would say that we have no standard for it in in the history of tech. But you know, Amazon it wasn't as much, but certainly, and they went public early. But they raised all sorts of debt and secondary stock offerings. Mm-hmm. And in a way, these guys are all disciples of Jeff Bezos. And mm-hmm. you know, the difference with Uber is that it had had some big competition, Didi in China and Lyft here, that also had access to the capital markets. Which Didi and, handed them their hat there yeah, quite a few times. And uh, and so there was a. a and you know, and then and then the environment that we're in with all this overseas capital coming into the U.S. and mm-hmm. the sovereign wealth funds, and so the money was there, good terms, and Travis and his board availed themselves of it, mm-hmm. and uh, it's you know it's amazing. Yeah. So wh- wh- where are they going now? Where is the what is it, IPO? 
most certainly. With Goldman Sachs, you know, essentially. <laughs> it does seem that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the, the existential question for Uber is obviously self-driving cars, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, it, it's, we, I don't, I can't think of another business where we can say, you know, Uber strength now might mean nothing, could right. literally be zero in a which, decade. Which Travis addressed in an interview with me, which I think he regret saying was that... Um, he said it was rather brusquely for yes. drivers. Well, I said, yeah. what do you think about self-driving cars? I think this is right at the dawn of self-driving cars. And he said, you know, the real problem, I think, is the guy in the front seat. We got to get rid of him. Yeah. That's essentially what he and said. And that's in the book. And actually that, uh, was that, all, was that all D or Recode? Recode. Then? Okay, code. so that, re- that code was very significant because Sergey also is at that code. Showing off the self-driving yep. And car. he, it, it's all in the book, and you'll enjoy this, because mm-hmm. it was almost, it was what they communicated to Uber beforehand. They basically said, we're going to launch a, a competitor. Mm-hmm. And then they pulled back on that. But then it was also Sergey on stage with either you or Walt, uh, basically dismissing their partner, Uber. And mm-hmm. after that is when Travis goes and decides that he ne- Uber needs to make the investment in, in driverless cars. Right. And I think that was smart because, uh, you know, this is the reset for the industry. And if Uber can lead in driverless cars, it has a, an incredible future. And mm-hmm. if it's Google or Ford or GM, then, you know, they've, they've got problems. Right, absolutely. But, you know, one of the things I was thinking of, you know, let's just be clear, Google's a big investor. Many, several parts of Google are big investors in Uber. So it's an interesting, problematic and, situation. And very, it's a they very, took David off the board, right? Yep, and, and Uber's David working Drummond. on its own. Yep, mm-hmm. Uber's working on its own mapping service mm-hmm. to try to get off uh, the Google platform. And so it's their, and to use the horrible term, frenemies. Frenemies, yeah. yeah. It's sort of like Apple, Google again kind of thing. How do you think about their move into self-driving? They've had some ups and downs again, but it's it's a big ticket item for a smaller company. They're still a small company, no matter how you slice it. And, and self-driving cars is a huge capital investment, no matter how much money they raise. And you have, like, again, the GMs, the Googles. Apple seems to be not clear where Apple is on this. You know, I always thought they would just get bought by one of them and become the reservation system. But for they're so things. expensive now. Who's yeah. going to buy them? Right. I'd say this. I'd say it's amazing what you can do when it's an existential crisis, mm-hmm. when it's your, it's your future and your whole business. And... Um, you know, Google, it's not Google's business. It's no. not Apple's business. Right. It's the car company's business. But, you know, we can we'll, we can both be sort of privately mm-hmm. pessimistic about the chances that they'll become real technology right. companies. So in that respect, I think Uber has a tremendous advantage. They're well mm-hmm. capitalized. They've got an amazing business that could fund the research. And everything is hinging on it. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, I think they're the company to beat. You know, at the same time, Google, you know, it had a 10-year head start. But then, you know, we, they, there's not a great track record there at maintaining talent on, right. on, on the now, what is now called the Waymo. No, they've already lost. Yeah, I mean, they've they lost got Waymo Chris problems, Umson right. and others. So, um, Waymo problems, that's very funny. I, you know, <laughs> little pun from Brad. Low-hanging fruit. <laughs> uh, so, I, you know, I think Uber has some grounding, but I wouldn't count them out. And how do you look at them when they're going into other – I just did an interview with the, the product guy, I'm blanking on his name, um, who was talking about vertical lift and – this, all kinds of other vehicles for people. Are we talking about Uber Eats? And no, no, no. This know. is a vertical lift and takeoff. It's a helicopter. Oh, I look at them as marketing M- right, trivialities. Just, right, that yeah. they're trying to do things. But it's in, interesting. In yeah, other Jeff, places. Jeff like, Holden from Amazon yeah. is working on some of that stuff yeah, at Uber now. So, Jeff, it's Jeff. Yeah, so it's not completely frivolous. Uh, but, you know, as Ashley Vance and I reported over mm-hmm. the summer, Larry Page is, has, has two companies. In vertical Z, lift and takeoff. Z Arrow and Kitty Hawk mm-hmm. working on basically flying cars. Flying cars, right. And, and you know, and they pro- I, I think that Uber has seen that. That and they know that they need to, you know, their 
their business is uh, urban mobility. Moving people around. Yeah, and, and so they need to be And, be and to change. finish up on Uber, how, how do you look at the world thing? Because they've got a real competitor in Didi. And at the same time, they, they had a little truce with them this summer after quite a bit of ugly fighting. As I'm sure you were subjected to all their different dueling press oh, yeah. releases. Oh, yeah. You know, I hate them, I hate them, I hate them, and now we're partners. <laughs> and by the way, I still hate them. Like, shh. <laughs> and, right. Uh, but, you know, Uber left the Chinese market with a significant position. Indeed, mm-hmm. I think 17%. Sure. And, you know, that's, you know, a tremendous outcome. Um, of course, they say that's what we really want to do. I'm like, mm, maybe yeah, no, not. No, I think, you know, it was hard for Travis. I think mm-hmm. he's he really wanted Uber to compete as a there. Global network. So, yeah, and I actually, it's a, it's a good point because I think that Uber had this belief that its superior technology would win, you know, but but we look at the strength of Lyft and and, and there's a lot, bunch of companies in New York City mm-hmm. and you just start to conclude that maybe good enough is good enough, that mm-hmm. as long as the car is there within four minutes, there are going to be a lot of players. And right. if that's the Austin's case- Austin's a good example now. There's yeah. been tons of local players Right, and Uber and Lyft aren't there. Out, yeah. and, and so if that's really the case and Uber doesn't really have the kind of network effects that you know, we'll talk about Airbnb clearly enjoys. It's a fight. It means it's a fight in every city. It means, you know, they can't lift fares to a more natural level. And Uber lost, you know, $3 billion last uh, in 2016. So, given that. Maybe that does not get better. Right. Well, Amazon went on and on for years doing that, right? Until they figured it out. Like, and now they're the darling. And we can talk about Amazon in a second. But what do you think their prospects are then? Speaking of that, because they are losing money. They are. But they're so popular. They're so useful. I think it's one of the one apps that people have in common across the country, as opposed to just sort of Silicon Valley loving apps. It's really everybody uses an Uber and knows what it is. Yeah. And and the $3 billion from last year was in large part because of China. So Mm -hmm. I think the financial picture improves. I don't think it gets, I don't think they get the profitability because they're still fighting a lot of these local incumbents, plus the well-capitalized lift. On the positive side, you know, with things like Uber Eats, it's beginning to take hold and, and this, the, the package delivery and everything else, like they have created a, a, a sort of urban mobility layer that they mm-hmm. can start to take advantage of. And look, it's changed my life and the fact that you can go to any country and, you know, instead of the concierge scrawling your address in Chinese, mm-hmm. you know, on a, on a card... You, you open one of these apps and it, mm-hmm. it, is, it has, again, cliche yeah. deployment has changed the world. And so I think, you know, ultimately they're in a fairly good position. They've got an extremely professional uh, management team and a board, obviously, and, and, you know, they have their challenges. But I guess I'm, I, I'm still optimistic about the future of Uber. Interesting. And public? Going public when? I would say, you know, you know, just Travis has, seems to have is, – is not in a rush by no. it. So I would, I'm going to guess uh, 2018 for Me Uber and, and 2017. For Airbnb. For Airbnb. I think that happens. All right, we're going to get to Airbnb next, but right now in the red chair, we have Brad Stone. He's a journalist for Bloomberg Tech, but he's the author of several books, and his new book is called The Upstarts How Uber, Airbnb, and the Killer Companies of the New Silicon Valley Are Changing the World. That's a mouthful, Brad. When we get back, we'll talk about Airbnb. We've just talked about Uber. Now we'll talk about the second company, the nicer Airbnb. By the way, if you keep pointing out my subtitles too long, I'm going to point out that this chair that I'm sitting in is not red. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. Thank you. All subtitles are too long. So, I will give you a break. I was in Silicon Valley recently for a unique experience. I was one of the first to meet Curry, a personal robot who is full of personality and does so much. It's a tiny little robot that rolls around your house and almost acts like a pet or I'm not sure what it is. It's a person pet kind of thing. And it's a pleasure to have around. She understands when you talk to her and then responds in her own language, beeps, which you'll understand as you get to know her. Curry moves around all on her own. She'll learn the layout of your home, knows to avoid obstacles like stairs and furniture. 
She also makes a great companion. Have her wake you up in the morning or greet you when you get home. She'll even follow you around playing this podcast if you want. I think you should do that. When you're not home, Curry can be your eyes and ears. She'll check on your kids or your pets and investigate loud noises. She can show you what's happening also right from your phone. So check Curry out. She's available for pre-order now at heycurry.com. That's H-E-Y-K-U-R-I.com. Go to heycurry.com today. I'd also like to tell you about Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Peter, who did you talk to this week? Kara, I just talked to a famous Hollywood screenwriter, director, and novelist, Scott Frank. He's made some of my all-time favorite movies, including Out of Sight, something called Walk Among Tombstones with Liam Neeson, which is also great. He's making a Netflix series with Steven Soderbergh. It's a cool new book out called Shaker. And we had a great conversation about what it's like to make movies and TV and books in 2017. You should listen. You can find Recode Media on iTunes, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're here with Brad Stone, well-known Silicon Valley journalist and also author of a new book out called The Upstarts, How Uber, Airbnb, and the Killer Companies of the New Silicon Valley Are Changing the World. Um, so we talked about Uber. Let's talk about Airbnb, a very different CEO. Couldn't be nicer. Brian Chesky yes. literally yes. couldn't be nicer. But I would say that one of the themes of this book mm-hmm. is that they're not so different. You ah, know, that they have That they have bended the rules and yep. push forward aggressively where they needed to. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, he, he's a every bit the entrepreneur as Travis sure, is. Sure, absolutely. And, yes, he, he does a much – I mean, Airbnb's game is strong, right? Yeah. They have created a mystique around what Craigslist was doing 20 years sure. ago. Sure, where sharing, sharing it's so good it's, There's an evangelism and a spirit that, you mm-hmm. know, you, you might find – uh, almost in some religions, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's been useful to them to create a, a bond with their community mm-hmm. and to enlist, you know, political support in the places where they've needed it. Absolutely. And they've had uh, their ups and downs. We'll get in that in a minute. I remember meeting them when they first started, the three or four founders, I think there was four at the time, at a, like a coffee shop down in Soma. And they had just had some success with one of the conventions or something like that and had, had really just started it. And it seemed... It was one of those things that I remember thinking, this is a really good idea. Like, that's a really interesting idea. And I think their big challenge was getting people to have people in their house and think of that differently, which I thought was, and I thought young people probably would do this kind of thing. But there, it was definitely a different tone and tonality, even though they immediately got into big trouble with a lot of things. Remember the, I guess there was the orgies, there was the, you know, all kinds of, you know, the people wrecking the apartment and all kinds of um anger by rental advocates, rent advocates in cities um, that soon became a real problem for them. And they, they didn't really know how to react to it initially. So talk a little bit about that there, sure. when they started. Well, the first the first thing is that there were people already doing this. There was a site called Couchsurfing. Couchsurfing. You know, the name is even similar to Airbnb. Uh, but they made a huge error, mm-hmm. which is they were registered as a nonprofit, mm-hmm. and they were very, extremely idealistic. And it wasn't a great experience. And the one thing that Airbnb had was Brian and Joe were designers, designers, and they did a great job. Uh, They also had Nate uh, Blachersik, who is the CTO, who, you know, I describe his history as a high schooler and at Harvard as really a creator of tools for spammers. Mm -hmm. And as a result, you know, he he was what we now call the growth hacker, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, very clever, kind of ingenious. uh, But, you know, all these tools to, like, build uh, Airbnb's audience in the early days, including like cleverly kind of getting their hooks into into Craigslist, which had mm-hmm. a much larger larger audience, and so they sort of you know they spent years 
they literally spent one year before Y Combinator just getting rejected. Mm -hmm. Like that's what they did all year. And so, you know, what they, they finally emerge and yeah, around 2000 and, um, on the election. Yeah, well, right. The election, they did They did the conventions, of you, as you mentioned. They went to Obama's inauguration. And then they start to get some traction, and immediately this, two things happen. The Samwer brothers clone them. Mm-hmm. Which and, is a, sort of a rite of passage, right? right? And then, yeah, and then, and then an apartment in uh, in the East Bay gets trashed. Mm-hmm. And the, the Boy, owner... was that a story? Right, and the owner starts blogging about it. Mm-hmm. And right, they handled that pretty poorly. I mean, you know, it's 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 uh, it's funny the similarities with Uber, but you know, the first thing that they they, they did, perhaps persuaded by their their legal counsel, is to is to try to evade you know accountability. Mm-hmm. And and you know the 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 internet community just wasn't going to let them get away with it. Mm-hmm. And Brian, to his credit, you know, pivoted fairly quickly and came back and. And did something that he he does now. You know, we see with the the questions around African Americans and, and mm-hmm. minorities being you know getting discriminated against on, on Airbnb. They're fairly good at uh, at just um, you know accepting responsibility and saying and pledging they're going to do better and talking to their community in a sympathetic way. Right, which is interesting. Which is funny because I'll, I'll never forget during that time he I did an interview with him at some like random event. And I think the orgy thing was coming out. Someone had an orgy at someone's apartment. There are condoms everywhere. Is that wrong? (laughs) (laughs) I I live in San Francisco, so it's just fine. But I remember him going, he goes, you know, people have been having orgies at hotels for years now. And I was like, I like the answer for me, but for you. (laughs) Probably not the right answer. But his point was that, like, the things that hotels were attacking him about have been happening at hotels. Like, all kinds of the same. You know, crime, death. Orgies, whatever it was, but I was like, people aren't think of hotels like that. And it's also not really true. I mean, hotels have to conform with a lot of regulations. They need to put carbon monoxide monitors in CO two yeah CO two monitors in in hallways and rooms. And you know, there there were Airbnbs that did not have that. And and, you know, Airbnb early on did not do a great job of Mm -hmm. warning its hosts what their obligations were. You know, vis a vis safety or or uh, local local regulations. Right. And, you know, they didn't want to because they didn't want to slow down the growth of their right. supply. Right. We don't really want to check. We don't want to protect. Right. We, they, they, we can't do it. It's too hard. We don't want to. But, but really, they didn't want to slow down. I mean, mm-hmm. this Airbnb, unlike Uber, took advantage of some regulatory ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Airbnb in New York City was always illegal. Like, mm-hmm. there is a law that's mm-hmm. not, you know, that's not really... Uh, meant to address home sharing. It was more about the big illegal hoteliers mm-hmm. uh, that were, you know, popping up and taking advantage of European tourists and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But, but the laws were there, and Airbnb, you know, you could not rent your home if you weren't there for less than thirty days. Mm-hmm. And you know, Airbnb didn't didn't, uh, you know, it, it it had a big market there, a big mm-hmm. community. It didn't want to stop that. It felt mm-hmm. the law was unjust, mm-hmm. you know, which it might have been. But nevertheless, they were they were all systems go. And I talk about some of the people, you know, the hosts who, you know, get evicted or and, you know, there, there are some that like get sued by the city and mm-hmm. have two years of legal drama. So what do you talk a little bit? I mean, everyone tries to celebrate it as the best thing ever. And it is I, I use it all the time. That's another thing I use all the time. But you do, when you use it, start to think about, not to the impact of hotels, because I could care less about it. They either get better or cheaper or something. I'm not really worried about them as much, um, although I do think about the workers and, and things like that. I'm more people like in a neighborhood where you're in a building and there's people you don't know who they are and 
you know, I, there is an element of mm, this mm. is not so, so that, safe. That sort of negative externality. Right, like, exactly. And so you start to think, do I really want my neighbors to do it? Do I like? But I don't have control. And 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 on the other side, I'm like, well, people can make extra money on the side. It's really good. And then I think, oh, there's not enough rent in San Francisco. It definitely creates a lot of like more than most businesses. You know, especially in San Francisco, rents are so high. Uh, you know that it does sort of force rental properties off the market, although the San Francisco rules are horrible around rentals. So it, it's a fascinating thing because you like this product, same thing with Uber, and you have issues with them. Like you, you start to go that you don't have maybe with, maybe you should have with other businesses. Yeah. Um, I mean, just full disclosure, I use Airbnb all the time too. Next mm-hmm. week I'm staying at an Airbnb in Brooklyn as I as I launch the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, yeah, if, if I had tourists going into and out of my neighbor's home at two in the morning, I wouldn't like that. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I actually... F- think that you've identified why Uber seems to be having fewer regulatory problems now. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, at least on, on ride sharing, has gotten critical velocity in North America. Mm-hmm. And Airbnb seems to be having more problems. Right. It, it kind of flew under the radar. Uh, but in some of these dense cities, which now just has a general problem with housing stock, mm-hmm. um, where rents are high, you know, we're seeing big pushback in, right. in, you know, in not just San Francisco and New York City, where they've been losing battles, but you've got little towns on the coast like Laguna Beach, where it's it's basically illegal. And I think, you know, it's, I, I do think that, you know, Chris Lehane now, mm-hmm. uh, you know, run, runs their policy department. I think, you know, Airbnb has a lot of work to do to find an equilibrium with cities, and they've had successes in some cities where... How does that happen? Because it, does, mean, it seems you, like there's no particular answer unless we have adequate housing for people. Well, no. What, Cheap and What they're doing housing. is they're identifying a number of nights where it's going to be suitable. So let's say, you, I think in San Francisco now, you can only host for 90 uh, nights a year. And mm-hmm. the city council tried to move it to 60, and that they got did. vetoed. Um, They're quite hostile to Airbnb. They, they are, but and you know, and a lot of it's emotional. You know, mm-hmm. that housing is an emotional issue. Yes, and, in and the, the city, politicians it said, is. right, you, you know, we'll use it uh, as a as a weapon when you know when it's tied up in inequality and mm-hmm. and of course there's it's also an actual problem. It is a it's yeah. a very real problem, but I, I don't think Airbnb has caused the housing shortage in San right, Francisco. Right, but it's just another you it's know, a it's a brick p- in the wall contributing factor, probably a small one, but genuine you know a genuine new sometimes for people in in communities that don't, you know, that live in residential communities. Like I always say that it's great that we have Fisherman's Wharf in Mm -hmm. San Francisco because it takes all the tourists and gets them out of our communities for a little little simulation San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the promise of Airbnb is is to give them an authentic experience. And as a traveler, I love it. And, you know, enjoying our quiet neighborhood, uh, you know, I don't necessarily want it to be uh, overrun with tourists. So even though you could at another factor, they they do bring a lot of economic activity. Sure, absolutely. To so talk a little bit about where they go from here, because one of the, again, they also didn't do themselves any favors when they put up those ads and said, "We're paying taxes. You're welcome." I'm like, "I'm sorry, I pay taxes. I don't ask for you're welcome, but yeah, you can give me mistake, one." Yeah. yeah. As they're starting to expand and going public this year, as you're saying, what are their challenges? What are their? Yeah. Well, first of all, that's a guess. I mm-hmm. don't know, but you know that we recently reported at Bloomberg that they're profitable now, mm-hmm. or they were in the second half of 2016. Um, That's profitable, profitable, or yeah, yep, and they're not uh, EBITDA profitable. Which profitable? There's is it? right there. I'm sure there are some uh, d- disclaimers there in their profitability, but you know they've got they've got a professional uh, a CTO right now, mm-hmm. and you know it it does feel like they're laying the groundwork. Mm-hmm. 
you know, they've got some regulatory questions to sort out for sure. And then this expansion into trips, which mm-hmm. is a great idea. Explain that. Right. So, Experiences. So they do. They ask me, Kara, do you want to come in an experience? I'm like, absolutely yeah. not. I do not Go want collect to. some mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. The idea is, you know, Airbnb is a platform to find lodgings and they're going to offer you more around a trip. Tours. Uh, and... Tours and meals, restaurant reservations, and maybe one day book your flight for you. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's a nat- they've got a great foothold in the, in the enormous travel industry. And this is that kind of horizontal expansion. And do you think that's a good idea? Uh, yeah, it sounds like a great idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, there's a there's a, a mission behind it that I kind of buy into, uh, which is that a lot of travel experiences today are, are corporatized. Or you know, destroyed. we go to Mexico and, and we stay in a resort with a bunch of other Americans. And are mm-hmm. we really experiencing the country? Are we getting served mm-hmm. something artificial and paying a lot for it? Mm-hmm. I think that is what the travel industry has become. So if they can come in and, you know, enforce create experiences that do seem authentic and it's people serving people and not companies serving people, then I think, you know, there's a great opportunity. So you're going to read another section about Brian and Travis Kalanick being similar. I I literally could not imagine. I want to hear this. I don't know if this is similar. It's it's more like these stories are intertwined Mm -hmm. in my book and and these guys learned a lot from each other. Sure. Let's hear Um, this. In the years following their first meeting in New York, Brian Chesky and Travis Kalanick struck up a sporadic friendship. A few times a year, they would go out to dinner in San Francisco, first by themselves, then with other entrepreneurs or with their girlfriends, to discuss their company's twin successes and their common experiences battling regulators and lawmakers. Quote, I think we learned a lot by watching each other, Chesky says. There are only so many people in the world that can relate to who, can relate to who share your position. Employees of both Airbnb and Uber remember these dinners well, says one Airbnb exec who was also close to Uber employees, quote, Brian would come back saying, we have to be tougher. And Travis would come back saying, quote, we have to be nicer. (laughs) (laughs) I got peanut and your chocolate and chocolate and your peanut butter. Yeah, exactly. And there's one other. Let me just summarize one other episode from the book, which is. This is at a time when Airbnb is considering uh, an, ex- uh, an expansion into other markets. This mm-hmm. is years ago. And it, it seems like they might have looked at actually acquiring Lyft. Mm-hmm. And Travis barges into the battery, this this club in San mm-hmm. Francisco, and walks up to, to Brian and says, I hear, I hear you're going to buy Lyft. Mm-hmm. And Brian denies it and says, no, no, it's not our business. Our business is trips. Mm-hmm. And Travis says, our business is trips. Oh. <laughs> and they have a nice laugh So were they going to buy Lyft? It never became real. Became real. Yeah. And, and Uber uh, was almost going to. I think Uber just pretends to well, buy I've Lyft got just that, to fuck with I've them. I've got that scene in the book. And yeah. there was a dinner um, with uh, John O'Farrell at Andreessen Horowitz and uh, and Emil and Travis and, mm-hmm. and John uh, Zimmer from Lyft. And, and Lyft wanted a larger percentage of Uber than Travis was ever going to. Yeah ever going to give and it went nowhere yeah well let's say also Andreessen Hortz missed that opportunity to invest in Uber didn't realize Travis would say go screw yourself which they weren't used to a big mistake yeah it was a big mistake and then Sherbin Peshavar now now is enjoying the fruits of that you know what's interesting about that is the idea of doing your own fate with venture capitalists like that pushing back on them and I think a lot of these times a lot of these entrepreneurs are in control can you talk about that yeah, I mean, I think the connection between the missed opportunity uh, between uh, Andreessen Horowitz and Uber is interesting. I mean, you know, they misjudged Travis, right? He is someone who, from the very beginning, uh, almost the beginning, right, when he became CEO, saw what a huge opportunity he had. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Andreessen Horowitz, you know, not only did they not 
see the extent of the Uber opportunity back then, and few people did. Right. Uh, but I think they also, you know, they, they misjudged Travis, and he, he he didn't fit. He didn't look like a Mark Zuckerberg or a Larry Page. Right. You know, he's he is pugilistic. He, mm-hmm. you know, he he probably doesn't make all that great impression the first yeah. time he's presenting to them. And so, yeah, not only did they lowball him, um, they you know they tried to put in a big option pool, and at the last minute, he, he pulled out. Right. And, uh, you know, it it, go, it probably goes down as one of the biggest misses in Silicon Valley history. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and Dreesen Horowitz was founded on the idea that it would, Loves it would get, yeah, and it would get a couple, of the, it would get the big hits every year. Right, yeah. And, you know, and, and look, they made up for it. They they invested in Lyft and, right. and Lyft. What are Lyft's possibilities? It was interesting. I was at, a, I had a dinner for Jeff Zucker. He wanted to meet some Silicon Valley people, and I had, like, Dick Costello there, and and John Zimmer came over, and he was like, you know, Kara, this was early. He goes, think about it. A car is 80% empty, and that's just bad for the environment, you know, because one person's in it, and there's right. five seats or whatever. Anyway, and he's like, oh, yeah, good. we're here to help the humanity, and la, 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 la. And he walks away, and Dick Oslo turns to Trudeau, and he goes, Travis is going to fuck with that guy, like, all day long. Like, he's dead. Like, dead meat, because he was so nice and so earnest. But talk about Lyft, because they, they managed to hold on. Well, and it's not bad for Uber to One, have it. It's amazing how Travis, he might, he might never admit this, but I think he got a lot of his idealism and, and some of Uber's mission from listening to John and mm-hmm. Logan Green, the CEO yeah. of Lyft. I right. mean, Both they were talking about the empty seats in cars and highways and And they traffic. truly believe it. Yeah, well, that, and that's their background. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, yeah, Travis they started rightly like a nonprofit. Yeah. Yeah, identified that. Um, look, I mean, people have been predicting Lyft's death you know, from the very beginning. And I think it goes back to what we were saying before about certain services. As long as they're good enough, mm-hmm. you can't outspend someone or, you know, in, into oblivion. Right. And I guess some an Uber board member, you know, might say uh, that, that Lyft's existence is just a reflection of this capital environment and the fact that capital is so, you know, so easy to get and Lyft has been able to raise money and do irrational things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Lyft says it's on a path to profitability. I think it says something about the market that, you know, it might not be a winner take all. And that right. is a problem for And Uber. you feel Lyft. I mean, there's been all the rumors of Lyft selling and all, everyone's reported back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. I, I think, you know, it, it it seems natural perhaps a GM might one day buy them. And, and we, we might look at this year as just a protracted negotiation between Lyft and one of its larger shareholders, GM. But, you know, Lyft, it's not, it's funny, it's not that differentiated from Uber, but they have in people's minds kind of created a different brand for yeah. themselves. Yeah. And, you know, super nice. There's not only one rental car company, and there's, there, ha- there was never only one taxi company. Sure, absolutely. It's interesting because Lyft is, they're more chatty. <laughs> I have to say, I like Uber better. I'm like, stop talking to me right now. <laughs> I'm on my phone. I was uh, by accident got in an Uber pool once, and I literally wanted to kill myself. You know, blah, 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 blah. And unfortunately, in San Francisco, it was like start stopping at startups, and people do like they know you, right? They oh, know so me. They're pitching you. And they the were car. like, and I was like, oh my god, like what? <laughs> That's and, awesome. like, and then that driver. What's well, funny was, how Uber defaults to Uberpool. It and, does, and so it's easy to make that mistake. I was too friggin' old when I was twenty-two for sharing cars, but yeah. I get, I get that. Yeah, some my, people love it. They want to flirt and date. I just literally want to be left alone and not speak to anybody. So when we get back, we're going to talk about what's coming next and where these things go, not just these companies, but you have such a perspective on Silicon Valley. So when we get back, we're going to talk about that, and I'm going to have Brad make some predictions and give advice to companies, if you don't mind. Looking forward to it. This episode is brought to you by MParticle, the growth API. Today, success as a media or commerce company requires you to take a data-driven approach across multiple screens. But doing that is hard. Legacy data platforms don't address modern data challenges, and SDK integrations are incredibly complex. 
mParticle is a simple and secure API, enabling you to connect easily to all of the leading marketing, analytics, and data warehousing tools in just minutes. The most forward-thinking brands such as Airbnb, Spotify, Hulu, and Venmo all use mParticle to accelerate growth in a multi-screen world. Visit mparticle.com slash decode to learn about how mParticle can simplify your data supply chain and drive engagement, retention, and monetization. Again, that's mparticle.com slash decode. This podcast is also brought to you by GoCD, the on-premise open-source continuous delivery server created by ThoughtWorks. With GoCD's comprehensive pipeline modeling, you can model complex workflows for multiple teams with ease. And GoCD's value stream map lets you track change from commit to deploy at a glance. GoCD's real power is in the visibility it provides over your end-to-end workflow, so you get complete control of and visibility into your deployments across multiple teams. Say goodbye to deployment panic and hello to consistent, predictable deliveries. To learn more about GoCD, visit gocd.io slash recode for a free download. Commercial support and enterprise add-ons, including disaster recovery, are available. We're here with Brad Stone, a journalist who writes for Bloomberg Tech. He is also author of a new book out called The Upstarts, How Uber, Airbnb, and the Killer Companies of the New Silicon Valley Are Changing the World. So, Brett, let's do a little bit broader. Now, I, I, I'll be remiss because you wrote a book called The Everything Story, Jeff Bezos and the Age of Amazon, which got Jeff and his, everybody pissed, which was great. Um, and since then, Amazon's never been bigger. Like, it's really amazing. It feels like Amazon's everywhere. I, you know, as you know, uh, the Echo is my favorite thing of all time right now for this week. Talk a little bit about them and, and then where things are going in Silicon Valley in general, because I think you have a unique perspective on that. Um, well, since the Everything Store came out, I think the market cap of Amazon is up by a factor of three. Yeah. You know, I'd like to say I predicted all that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it really, it's, it is, yeah, it's the everything company right mm-hmm. now. And, you know, despite the criticism of the culture and, you know, the New York Times did that famous piece. And I, you know, and I, I get into it a little bit in, mm-hmm. the, in the book, how it, how it's a thankless culture and people burn out and, you mm-hmm. know, the average tenure is short and mm-hmm. sometimes people don't have nice things to say. And all that's true. But you have to give, you have, there's something about it that has yielded a kind of decentralized innovation. Well, and completely customer focused. I yeah. don't know how else to put it. Yeah. it. It's just like you're never displeased with Amazon. I can't think of the time. And when I was, and they, it's fixed they give you your money back. Immediately. Yeah. It's a little like Nordstrom, you know, the and I remember thinking in Seattle when I first met Jeff when he had like five employees or something small like that. It's, he talked about Nordstrom, which was a big, you know, at the time was a very icon. I was there to see Nordstrom when I was also there to see him. And so it was an interesting, it's interesting that both from Seattle in a weird way. But so where do they go? What is their, do you think I, they... I think, that, you know, if we're, if we're getting into irresponsible predictions, I mm-hmm. say it's Amazon that becomes the biggest company in the world one day and is maybe the first to a trillion dollar market cap. Mm-hmm. Because... Every every new fulfillment center, every time they get closer to the customer, you know, it's not like Apple where they have to reinvent that the next year to compete. Right. It's it just, just get better it's and progress. Better. So I, yeah. I in a newsletter I called it the flywheel of doom because they get closer. <laughs> it's you know it's the it's shorter delivery. It's um, there's more variety for people yeah. uh, in terms of instant delivery. It, it, it anticipates. Yeah, they can. Start I'm expecting Jeff Bezos to shut my house as a toothbrush, <laughs> Kara. It's a month. He you might need to change. He it. might do that. Hi. Um, and so, 
Yeah, I, I think that unless you're in Nordstrom's or a Costco and have something di- differentiated in retail, you go away. You right. know, I don't see how you compete with Amazon. And, and you know, the ingeniousness of Prime mm-hmm. and the way it locks you into their ecosystem. And look, all you need to do to predict the future of Amazon is to get a Prime customer to open up their Amazon account and to look at the spend over annual spend. Oh, every, every it's day. more and more. I like every day. And it's and you know what? It's better. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe it's less expensive. I sort of have they this need to vague. Do about the yeah, and the and the, and the the, uh, the trash for mm-hmm. sure, but you have this vague idea that it's less expensive. It may not even be, but it's just convenient. Right, and you, then you start to get impatient with even standing in line somewhere. Well, it's interesting because I literally bought something I could have gotten at the Walmart, the, the Walgreens, Walgreens down yeah. the street, and I was like, "What am I doing?" Like, I, ne- <laughs> I almost bought toilet paper, and I said, "No, I shall yeah. not. I shall hold out uh, for that." I will walk home look, with my giant thing of toilet. Then paper. you look at the new businesses, and like the TV shows mm-hmm. are pretty good. They're yep. not quite as good as Netflix they're is, good. but they're good. I'm kidding, like, they're good. Yeah, Man in the High Castle, Transparent is. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there was one Red Oaks that mm-hmm. I loved, mm-hmm. and you know, and the I have an Echo as well. You know, they, he, he this says something about Amazon. They get creamed on the phone, right? Mm-hmm. Just humiliated. Creamed. That was a and, bad phone. And and now they have rebooted that device strategy and are leading. You know, in this whole it new amazes wave. me that they beat Google and Apple. Still beating Apple. And you know, Apple got to Siri before Amazon got to Alexa. But and Google, really. which should but not be, really, you don't no. have a useful Siri. No, device. and and Google, which should own that because mm-hmm. it, what are they if not an AI company? Mm-hmm. Is you know copied Amazon. Sure. So I, you know, it's it's it, I, to me it gets back to Bezos. Although He's, there's something about I've heard the Google. I haven't had to use the Google device, but I don't want them in my home. Like, I, but I don't mind Jeff spying on me. I guess I don't know <laughs> yeah, what it that's is. That's okay. I'm like, eh, what's he gonna? What is he even gonna hear? Like, who cares? Like, he's selling me shit, so I don't care. But Google, I'm like, mm 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 mm. Can't have Larry Page slurping around too, my. They're a little too good. As they know the everything. They know where I go. Yeah. They know where you. You know. I well, just, Amazon knows everything you buy, so I don't care. So it's yeah. sort of Safeway. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's not. I, I feel. I don't know. It's ridiculous. It's a mm. ridiculous thing. Oh, let's just gonna make one more point, sure. which is, I, you know. Jeff is the smartest guy in the business. Are you doing a sequel? Are you going to do a sequel? I, I thought about that. Yeah, you should. Because there is, there is, you know, it's it's the most interesting and complex he is company the in the world. After Steve yeah. Jobs died, I think he's to yeah. me. If I, you know, everyone goes Elon Musk, I'm like eh, Jeff Bezos, and you know, a very complicated person too. Not mm. quite the smiling pleasantries mm. that he does. Do you, as you know, as you know, you were on the receiving end of that. Do you think he's more under threat under the Trump administration, having owned the Washington Post? He sort of tried to be a little nicer, but he's gone he in there like everyone himself. else uh, with the jo- with the phony jobs pronouncement right. and, and whatnot. Um, Yet that tweet he did was well. Very... I think it's the Post. Mm-hmm. I think that what looked to be a kind of br- brilliant strategic acquisition, mm-hmm. um, you know, now five years ago. And, and, like, the Post has flourished By under way, his ownership. he loves it. Yeah, he loves it, and it's a great paper now. It's a national mm-hmm. paper. Um, the coverage of Trump has been, just there. It's has been great. But I think in terms of right now, the, considering the president that we have that has been elected, you know, and the and the tenor of the Post coverage, mm-hmm. which is, is great and, and har- as harsh as anyone, mm-hmm. he, he, you know, considering the temperament of Trump, he might have a business problem. Right, meaning taxes, all kinds of things. Uh, antitrust, just, you know, temperamental, two in the morning. Morning, angry tweeting mm-hmm. that hurts the stock price. Not that he cares, but you know. The only thing that I would say is people love Amazon, and so it's not there's so attacking a company people what are you love. Gonna do? I, I don't know. It's going to work. Like, why are you attacking Amazon? Like, fuck you. Like, you, like Lockheed. Yeah, those plane makers. Yeah, those defense contractors. But I don't know. It's it's going to be interesting. You're, you're probably right. There might be things on the margin in terms of you know like the the permits for the drones or something mm-hmm. where he can kind of 
make Jeff's life miserable if he decides. I mean, I, look, there's a lot of questions about how Trump governs and, you know, whether there's ever uh, <laughs> we get back to rationality or not. But right. there is there's something I agree with one of your st- the stories. There's something really unsettling about seeing all these CEOs walk into Trump Tower and right. make their jobs pronouncements right. when they're just totally artificial and they're all being pragmatic and they're trying to protect their businesses. Uh, and yet... Uh, you know, Jeff with the post, I think, is will be will be set up as an adversary. Yeah. So tell me about that. Talk about that. Because, you know, I've been out front of this and I'm going to keep going. This prepping story in The New York Times. I'm like, those. I'm not going to say what I think. I mean, I'll write what I think. But the selfishness, the self-regard, the has it changed here? Because some of it now has become literally like a constant episode of Silicon Valley. Like, are you kidding me with with that or not standing up or not speaking out? Um, I get the pragmatic part. But, you know, when things happen, you know, you say you have changing the world in your headline, and I was joking about it, but it seems to me they brag about changing the world when they actually do. They don't want to take responsibility for the negative aspects of it. Do you think that? Are you, for some reason, it feels a little sour at this mm-hmm. point. And it's not just the Trump people, it's the behavior of Silicon Valley in the wake of it. Because I think they, they have acted like they've had a higher mission than, say, a, I don't expect a bank to do anything but mm-hmm. the most venal thing of all. But Silicon Valley, I do expect more from her. Well, maybe I, being... I guess maybe I would my my maybe I'm more cynical than you here, Kara. Where <laughs> I think like the idealism has always been marketing. Mm-hmm. Like even back in the early days of Apple and the pirate mentality. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were building a computer that they wanted to the differentiate right. from 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 IBM and Microsoft. And you know what? I, I you know I don't remember Steve Jobs saying anything about the the Gulf War and the mm-hmm. invasion of Iraq. And you know, like it's we we haven't been very political in this community. And to the extent that we have, and these the upstart CEOs have needed to be, it's for their own you know it's their own means. I mean, Elon is you know t- you know close with the administration now and on that Council of Economic Advisors. For one reason, because he, yeah, and he wants cars and and, right and and renewable resources, and he has an agenda that he wants to see enforced. And it's it's been slightly amusing to see you know someone like Eric Schmidt cultivate the Obama administration for eight years, and he's now cultivating the Trump folks. That ain't gonna work. You get that, right? It probably won't. But this is they're they're all businessmen, and they always have been. Mm -hmm. And the idealism has been. Marketing. You know, marketing and smoke and mirrors. And I, look, I mean, they're they're business people with responsibility to their investors and their employees. And the mission is sometimes, you know, is is tr- is real, but it's also something that you use to motivate and inspire and attract employees and mm-hmm. draw customers to your company. I, I find the employees are getting a little bit. That's who I'm hearing from a lot. A little There's, cynical. No, they're like, what? Like, are you kidding me? It's it's an because they do believe it. They some of them really do. A lot of them do. Um, even higher up at. Uh, Google. I was talking to them. They're like, thank you for kicking their nuts. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, thank you for saying something that they should have said. And I think it. there are some things. I'm thinking of IBM being the first company to integration, gay rights. Like, they, there are some impacts that a lot of these companies can have for the positive social good that they have stood for. You know, tolerance, presumably, yeah. um, inclusion, all kinds of stuff, immigration, where it, it's not that hard to go out on a limb here. Right. It's also true that we live right now in a just a desperately divided time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, let's say your Facebook, you know, a large percentage of your user base is Republican. Mm-hmm. They don't have the same values as you do. And it's your job, if you're running that company, to offer the same kind of service to them as, as to everyone who does share your political values. So mm-hmm. they're in a little bit of a, a tricky situation because where we are as a country. Mm-hmm. And what about uh, – 
I'm going to have to make you talk about not fake news, but alternative facts. Fake news. <laughs> what, are we, what are we calling it now? Alternate, What's the euphemism? Alternative facts. By the time this comes out, we might have a whole other <laughs> well, lies. construct. Lies, lies is the word I use. Yeah, lies. Mm-hmm. I mean, truthiness, as, right. as Stephen Colbert says. You know, I, to me, it's like the. Let, let me try to take my personal politics okay. out of it, which is that, you know, Donald Trump won, and or he got the majority of the electoral votes, a large majority. And. I think it would be patronizing to say that the people in Florida and Ohio, the, the majorities of people in Florida and Ohio, smaller majorities in Wisconsin and Michigan, um, you know, that they voted for him because they were misled. Mm-hmm. I think that would be by something on oh, Facebook. No, I don't think they're misled. No, I think, I think that they have their beliefs and, and um, you know, and it, I think it's up to everyone who doesn't agree with those beliefs to the, to the Democratic Party to go and enlist those people and, and make your argument to them and not to go – and blame technology companies. I, I, look, I think Facebook has a lot of work to do to try to, you know, make sure that people are seeing meaningful things and not not garbage. Mm-hmm. But you know, I don't think that you can lay the current situation at the feet of the, the companies that we. Cover. No, you could say. I mean, I do believe social media has become weaponized, and that it can be used in ways that there that there are things they could do to not to like move people around, but you know, there's and from business reasons, you know. See what's happened to Twitter. It's become a, as Casey Newton here calls it, a screamscape. Well, was it was it Tim Ferriss who said on your podcast mm-hmm. recently that that um, social media is making us miserable? Miserable. I, I agree with. It. I think it's it's all. It's not unwa- good for their business. It's, it's unwatchable. It's right. like you can't look at it right it's now like and not have news. your blood pressure go up. No, it's like cable news. You just turn it off. And so there are, and it's interesting, like a place like Snapchat where they do verify publishers, where it feels like. You know, there's some not imposing editorial guidelines, I think, is just a canard there. You do it every day. Um, and at Twitter, there were a lot of people on the board arguing we oppose them all the time. We have to, like, get rid of all the bullying. We just have to. It doesn't. And look what and they didn't. And look what's happened. Um, and now they have, you know, they're, they're sort of in a situation they can't sell themselves. One of the re- issues is the sort of um, cesspool mentality that goes on there. But you don't feel like they that these companies. I don't, I feel like they have not taken the responsibility for their platform's impact at all, and they don't want to. They sort of want to like the media companies every day try really hard to be accurate, no matter what people say. It's never been my experience that they haven't. Um, that said, these companies are having just as much impact with distribution. Do not just don't even want to get near it. Are they going to, or should they? Or? I think. Well, I, I do think. I mean, and and I think it's we're talking about interestingly the same thing that like Airbnb uh, faced mm-hmm. when you know they were just a platform, and then you know things are happening on their service that they right. didn't, and then they didn't want to take responsibility for it, and then they realized that they had to kind of walk in the shoes of their hosts and do better. Mm-hmm. And I think you know this is a, it's almost the same question you know it's it's the facebook's and the twitter's had an open platform and people come in and abuse it you know two years ago we were talking about news farms and spammers Mm -hmm. and they had to kind of tweak the algorithms to address that Mm -hmm. it was lowering the quality of the content on on the on the site and now you know it's it goes by different more malevolent malevolent. and it's fake news right there are cases in which it's malevolent and they need to do better yeah they need to be little kind of constant arbiters of you know while maintaining free speech and allowing people to express themselves even if they don't personally agree with with what's being expressed right, but in your book you're talking about two companies that are i hate these are disrupt but they're decimating things you know so is amazon all the companies mm-hmm. you wrote write about are decimators of other businesses and yet when it comes to replacing the res- i think about san francisco a lot because 
you know, when Wells Fargo or Bank of America started here, they had an interest in the civic life of a city, not just that. You know, obviously Uber's moving to Oakland, Airbnb is here. The interest in the civic life and the responsibility of their wealth, and not just their wealth, but their impact, their businesses, does not, the penny does not seem to have dropped that they feel that they have responsibility. You have Gates giving away, you know, billions. You have others, Mark, moving in that direction. But do you think these companies do understand their social and societal impact? Not social, but societal impact well enough. Because like, Airbnb didn't take the issues around rentals very seriously at first. Uber did not take the issues of uh, safety at all. They didn't think of them, you know, kind of thing. A- Amazon decimating Main Street, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and they exploited sales tax loopholes. Yeah, exactly. So even as they're undermining retail, they're, they're you know, arguably uh, reducing the tax rates. So do they have a greater responsibility or not? Or just this is the way it's going to be? These sort of rapacious companies taking all the goods <laughs> and taking all the good stuff and leaving behind damage? Or don't they? I mean, well, I mean, damage? I think that yeah, I don't quite look at it in that way. I mean, you know, they have fundamentally provided better service and more right, exactly. and moral That's the options, thing. Right. right? So No, I don't want to defend the tax industry because you know what they got? They deserved right. it. They got it coming yeah. kind of thing. And I also think, and this, you know, this is going to sound like letting them off, but they're still young businesses, and mm-hmm. they're they're pre-IPO. And look, I mean, Amazon was incredibly insular, and is now doing incredible things in in the in the city of Seattle, and that's twenty years. And you know, Mike, we talk about Bill Gates now, but did he care in two thousand two thousand one? He didn't at all. So there's, you know, there's a there's a natural life cycle to these things, and we're seeing Salesforce now, much larger company, engage in the city of San Francisco in some truly incredible ways. You know, Mark Benioff is, he's it, yeah, and and he, you know, he's a great example to follow. You know, I don't hold it against Travis or Brian right now being at, you know, formative times in the creation of their companies pre-IPO still, you know, with these large questions facing them about their survival, that they're, you know, that they're not being public citizens, Mm -hmm. you know, better public citizens. I don't know that they have an immediate obligation. I mean, over the long term, as I I sort of conclude in the book, I want to see them live up to their promises. Mm -hmm. If Uber's vision is to reduce or eliminate traffic, well, let's see that happen. And Mm -hmm. if if Airbnbs is to reduce some, uh, you know, some human connection to the travel industry, to restore some human connection to the travel industry, yeah, then let's see that happen. And, you know, and maybe we do conclude in five years that it hasn't been worth the price of disruption. Mm -hmm. But these are still incredible experiments that are experiments that are underway. Well, it's certainly good for consumers. The time has never been better. I mean, you know, I make that old joke that San Francisco is assisted living for millennials. And it seems like, you know what I mean? Like, everything you want, never have to leave your house kind of thing. And it's it sort of creates a convenient society for consumers. But then you worry about the society at large, you know, kind of thing. All right, we're going to finish up talking a little bit about your predictions, Brad, broader predictions, you know, you see everything, as I do. And Give me some things you think are overhyped, underhyped, what you think people should be paying attention to now. I'm thinking a lot about this lately. What's the – it feels like we're in a lull. Maybe mm. maybe I'm wrong. It doesn't feel hard charging. It seems like a lot of feature creep right now and things like that. What do you see as really important to focus on as a tech writer right now? Well, first let me start off by saying if I was an incredible predictor of the future, I would probably be in a very different business. <laughs> <laughs> and I think one of the lessons of this book is that even the so-called experts couldn't mm-hmm. predict Uber and Airbnb, no. right? The, I've got the, the AngelList number in the book of, of, of something like 130 of 150 people on the list back in 2010 didn't even open or return the Uber yeah. email. Mm-hmm. They, just, they just missed it. Right. And so I have no idea. Mm-hmm. 
So we'll start off with that. All right. But if but I'm that doesn't uh, stop the journalist, <laughs> but, yeah, but here Brad. I go, <laughs> here I go anyway. You know the things that we're talking about now, like AI mm-hmm. and venture and uh, virtual reality, seem to me to be overhyped. I don't think we're quite there yet. I was in an auto self-driving truck mm-hmm. um, recently, which Uber bought. Which Uber bought, and you know here we are. We get on the highway. We're you know it's perfect weather, no rain, no traffic. And they press the button, and and you know here we are driving, but the guy's hands are hovering nervously <laughs> over the steering wheel, and it's perfect conditions. Mm-hmm. And you know, so when I heard that they delivered some beer in Colorado, I thought, you know, these are these are artificial conditions, and the challenge has always been, you know, the 0.01 percent that something anomalous happens. Right. So you know, to me, I feel like we're although not as- in that case, I do make the I always use this example, um, which is like. Are you the are you the asshole reporter at Kitty Hawk that goes? Uh, you know that was just very short and it looks like it was going to break and who knows and it was just a beach and they it's didn't manage to get more than wings. and they got what ten feet off big friggin deal and it's you're possible like, you know what I mean it's like possible. hey hey yep. it's sort of the beginning and and you know the the Alexa the Echo that we have it is a great novelty and the kids love it and mm-hmm. I love it but you know it it doesn't understand as often as it understands mm-hmm. and it has it a long understand. way to go yes it should understand it has a long way to go. And uh, and so I think you know we're at the we're at the very beginning of AI making the meaningful impact mm-hmm. that everyone predicts for right, it. Right. I think virtual reality seems like a great gaming platform, but I haven't seen implementations that have you yeah. know impressed me all that much. Yeah. Don't I get, say that to Eric; he wants it. <laughs> Sorry, no Eric. one else does. Eric, uh, I get you know I get dizzy every time I put on a headset, and I think, oh, that's great, that's the future, and I I really don't want to own one of those. Things. Right. It's interesting because I was just seeing one that was a bunch of uh, John Favreau. We did a podcast with him, and he has this one that's more dulcet gnomes and and stuff and i like it was beautiful when i did it and then i was like okay yeah but maybe lean over and say hi to the gnome i'm like all right hi gnome i was like i'm waiting for it to like blow my friggin mind and now it's like you can touch the key and i'm like "Uh, why why do i want to touch the key at the same time i do although i'm like the larry david i do think that when we're in the home the old Mm -hmm. folks home Mm -hmm. that virtual reality and you know hopefully this is you know Mm -hmm. several decades away that this will be an incredible escape i see that we're sitting there so i think it's there yeah but i don't think it's i'm not going to an old folks home (laughs) oh good no i'm gonna feel like shot through the head by someone at some (laughs) point it's inevitable, but I see what your point is that it, it, so it's a lot of overhyped. hype now, a lot a little of hype now. and then what else? Yeah, well, I mean, I I don't know. I, I'm curious to hear what you think about this, but it feels to me like we've always gone in seven or eight year cycles in the mm-hmm. valley, and you know we're getting to the end of one here. But look, all these companies are still private. You mm-hmm. know, Snapchat's going to start soon, uh, going public, and and so we're not really at the end. And this era has been defined by these companies like Uber and Airbnb. So. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of runway, uh, and I don't. You know, that's where I'm focusing. You know, obviously, I've spent a lot of time with these two companies mm-hmm. and these two industries, and uh, yeah, I'm excited for what's happened next. But my there God, anything I need anything you a, think this whoa, that's friggin' cool. I'm obsessed with life extension right now. Well, that would be nice. Mm-hmm. I'm, ro- I'm rooting for those. I'm rooting for those guys. After that Elon interview we did, where he talked about neural networks and. I like that. I idea. Feel that to, yeah, that, that right. would be nice. And we were talking about something, and I said, you know, you know, the human body can't really go to Mars without like dying friggin' soon. And he's like replicants, mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh my god. You know, I'm <laughs> I'm rooting fantastic. for I'm rooting for Larry Page with the uh, the driverless car stuff. I really? Was, yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's fascinating and feels far out and un- unlikely. The, All the hovering of, car or the driverless car? No, it's the car? flying car. The flying, the flying car. car. You just said driverless cars. Okay. I was like, eh. uh, right, the the vertical takeoff and landing. Mm-hmm. Society, city, it would change everything. Mm-hmm. And 
Um, you know, they're testing them. Right. Um, I don't. They're incredibly secretive. It's unclear how far they are. There'd be a, there'll be a big regulatory fight on that one if you I'm could just sure imagine. Will. Boy. Uh, but boy, that'd be uh, fun right. to get down to San Jose in 15 minutes. Right. Right. Anything else? Hyperloop. I'd lo- you know, it feels fanciful to me. Mm-hmm. But you're I'd, so nice. Most people <laughs> have other words besides fanciful. What but, a nice word from Brad Stone. But you know, I, I would. I, you know, as long Hy- as they, as long Hype as there are the restrooms right. on the Hyperloop, I'll take that. I think that's going to be good. Don't you think it's going to be people? Come on. It's, it's yeah. going to be like Amazon shit to get to you faster. That's well, they got their drones. They don't need the Hyperloop. Um, is there anything you'd like to see invented, Bradstone? Yeah, I'm not sure I can answer that right now. I don't, let me. I could think about that. All right. Think about it. Uh, book writing robots. Oh, so good I idea. Could take some time That's going to happen, Bradstone. It's not. You're going to. You and I are. <laughs> have idea, timed our career perfectly. The idea of like AI. We just get to retire yeah. and these young. Too bad. Yeah. I, yeah. The idea of, of AI somehow taking over journalist jobs. Mm-hmm. I'm sure this is what everyone says before they mm-hmm. before they see the robot at their desk. Yeah. But that feels unlikely to me. Okay. I don't know. All right. Last question. You have to give an advice to young journalists. You have to do that. What is your? What do you think is critical right now? It's a very tense period in media, and you know, to see Bannon, Bannon wants us to shut up. Steve Bannon should shut up. He's trolling everybody. Uh, what do you think? I would say. What would lear- you say? What I say. What I say is learn from someone good. Mm-hmm. You know, find a Kara Swisher mm-hmm. uh, or someone who can teach you where you can learn good habits. Uh, because this stuff is hard. Writing is hard. You, there are very few people, and unfortunately, they exist. So everybody gets the wrong impression. Uh, but there are very few people who spring fully formed, able to write good sentences and report and hit the scene at the age of 22. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it took me 10 years yeah, working at, at Newsweek. Right. We, we paid our dues. And a lot of young people today don't have the same opportunity to pay their dues. So they also you, do not want to pay their dues. Perhaps there's something there. Um, but I think you got to find uh, somebody good. you got to be willing to listen. And you have to suffer. Being good takes... You know, it, being good involves getting your draft back just torched with mm-hmm. all sorts of criticism that hurts and then spending the weekend doing nothing else but picking up the pieces again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've got to be willing to you know pay your dues and, and to get better. Would you be a journalist if you were 22 right now? I think so. I was I was drawn to this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love nothing it. Nothing else I you wanted it. to do? I don't so know that there was anything else I could do. <laughs> I don't think I was qualified for anything else, but I love it, and I love I love learning. Jack of all trades, master of yeah. none. That's I think the definition I love, of a journalist. I love. You know what I love about it? It's we get to we get to go out every day and learn yeah. from people that are smart. I really, love, I like see, that. I have a whole different. I'm like I get to go out and irritate people all day <laughs> the, long. Look. And you it know, works, and, and it pays and, off. And I, they, I do that as well, mm-hmm. and it's part of the of the business. Maybe I enjoy it a little less than you do. Yeah, I really but do. But it's part of the business, so yeah. I don't shirk away from that. Yeah, I was when I was I just I was arguing with a Facebook exec, and I literally was like, no. And he was like, yeah. I was like, no, you're lying. And it was just so enjoyable for me, and I felt bad for him. He he was he was all hurt by my questioning of his perfection so thank you so much brad get the book uh, it's called uh get both brad's books actually i really love the amazon book and i have not finished his upstarts but both books are great the everything store jeff bezos in the age of amazon and you and you should do a sequel you absolutely should do a sequel because what a fascinating to me he's the most fascinating person of all and this was uh, the first book that really started to explain why he was so important the second one is a new book. is out called is out now. Correct. Uh, correct. Correct. The Upstarts: How Uber, Airbnb, and the Killer Companies of the New Silicon Valley are Changing the World. There's a nice new excerpt on Bloomberg Tech, and I'm sure there'll be several others. There's a couple others. more coming as well. Good. So just please buy it. It's a great book. Um, are you? Did you uh, do a, an Audible version of it? Or? There is an Audible did version. Did you read it? I did not read oh, it. I know. Brad. I know. They got a professional. Really? Yeah. You should read it. I'd like to hear you talk about it. 
seems like a lot of work. It is a lot of work. I did it once. You have to eat apples so you don't go. That's good advice. It dries out your mouth. I'll do the next one. All right. Okay, good. Anyway, Brad Stone, one of my favorite journalists of Silicon Valley, thank you for coming to the show. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews we've done with time well spent founder Tristan Harris, Color CEO Othman Laraki, and LFS CEO Sally Krawcheck, just to name a few. All those interviews and more are at recode.net slash decode. Now that you're done with this, why not try one of our other podcasts? Recode Media with Peter Kafka comes out every Thursday. On Fridays, I host Two Embarrassed Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from our events like the Code Conference, Peter Kafka's Code Media, and Jason Del Rey's Code Commerce. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Digital Media, which distributes this show. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday with another great guest. Tune in then. For companies to succeed today, they need builders, and builders need tools that allow them to innovate. The problem is, most cloud vendors don't offer the range of tools builders are looking for. Amazon Web Services is the leading cloud service provider giving builders the reliability and security they need. AWS pioneered cloud computing over 10 years ago to help any business, from the smallest startups to the biggest global companies, create their own applications and manage their workloads. By listening to what customers want, AWS is adding more features and services than any other cloud provider while consistently reducing prices. So if you'd rather focus on creating a business instead of an infrastructure, check out podcast.aws. Learn about how AWS can help you build a better future today. And let builders build.